Psalm 51, page 562. How do you know if someone is truly sorry for what they've done? How do you know if someone's sorrow is authentic? How do you know if someone will change when they say that they will? How do you know if someone understands what they've done and why it hurts and why it matters? It's a difficult question to answer because I think all of us have experienced people whose apologies seem real, they seem authentic, but over time they prove to be false. They may weep, ask for a second chance, ask for forgiveness, make promises to change, but over time, it proves to be inauthentic because there's no lasting change. It's because there's something hidden in every sorrow, in every apology, something hidden in the heart that we can't see. Outward appearances are not enough to gauge the authenticity of someone's apology. Someone may appear sorry not because they understand their guilt, but because they got caught and are now in trouble. And that kind of sorrow leads to an inauthentic apology and no lasting change. This is true in our relationships with one another. It's also true, more importantly, in our relationship with God. The Bible talks about two different kinds of sorrow over our sin. Worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow looks real. We pray. We may even weep. We ask God to forgive us. We make promises to change. We may even bargain. But it comes from a place in our heart that's not motivated to repent because we've offended God, but because our sin has now cost us something. Worldly sorrow is focused on things of the world, but godly sorrow is focused on God. Godly sorrow, real, genuine, authentic sorrow over our sin comes from a place in our hearts that says, I have dishonored my Lord, I have rejected the one who has made me, and I am crushed by it. Our main concern in godly sorrow is that we have offended God. Worldly sorrow does not lead to change, but godly sorrow leads to change and renewal and repentance and life. Psalm 51 is a picture of godly sorrow. If you want to know what we're talking about today, we're talking about godly sorrow, and we see a picture of it here in Psalm 51. And in this psalm, we get, a, we get two movements. The first 12 verses, we see the marks of godly sorrow, what characterizes godly sorrow. And then in the last seven verses, we see the results of godly sorrow, the outcome of this heart attitude. So would you read with me, starting with the heading, Psalm 51, for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts and teach me wisdom in the innermost place. 
Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices. Whole burnt offerings to delight you, and bulls will be offered on your altar. This is God's word. Before we look at the marks of godly sorrow, I want to spend a little time looking at the heading of, these, of this psalm because it gives us the historical situation that prompted David's confession. And the thing about these uh, headings in the psalms, they're not put there by the English translators. They're actually part of the original Hebrew manuscripts. And, and look what it says. It says, for the director of music, so it's meant to be used in public worship, a psalm of David. What prompted it? When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. You can read about this stain on David's life in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. We don't have time to read the whole passage, uh, so I'll just give you the Cliff Notes version. David's the king of Israel, and his army is out fighting against the Ammonites. Typically, the king would go with his army and represent them and lead them, but David decided to take this one off. One afternoon, he's on the roof of his palace, and From his vantage point, he can look down and see a woman bathing. Her name's Bathsheba. She's beautiful, and he likes what he sees. Tells his guards to go bring her to him. He has an adulterous affair, and she gets pregnant. And now the cover-up begins. David calls Bathsheba's wife, Uriah, off the battlefield and says, go be with your wife so that the pregnancy will look like it came from him. But Uriah is a man of great character. He refuses to go home and enjoy his wife while his countrymen are dying on the battlefield. That doesn't work. Phase two. David writes a letter to the commander of his army and tells the commander to put Uriah on the front lines in the heat of battle and then to pull back so that Uriah dies on the battlefield. It works. Uriah dies. Then David marries Bathsheba to make it look like the pregnancy occurred during a time that they were married. And it looks like he got away with it. Lying, conniving, abuse of power, rape, and murder. And no one knew except God. God sends the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 12 to confront David in his sin. Probably had been months since this has occurred and his heart had grown very hard. And the Holy Spirit uses Nathan's words to melt David's heart and to expose him in his sinfulness. And David felt the weight of his sin against God. 
God ripped the cover off of the cover up, and in that moment, there was only a holy God and a very sinful man and nowhere for him to hide. That's how God works, isn't it? He uses a few words of truth spoken in love to melt even the hardest of hearts. Maybe it comes in a sermon or in a conversation with a Christian friend or when you're reading your Bible in the morning, but God uses a few words of truth to make you face the sins you've been hiding from, expose the sins you've been trying to cover up, and shines a bright light in the darkness of our hearts. And we feel the weight of our guilt before a holy God. And brothers and sisters, this is not God being unkind to us. This is actually an act of his grace because sin lives and breeds and grows in the darkness. It thrives in secret. And God loves us too much to let a disease spread throughout our lives and hurt us and others and bring dishonor to his name. So like a good surgeon, he searches it out and exposes it and and brings it before our eyes and then cuts it out, even if it's painful and leaves a scar. And by his grace, he'll do that work in our hearts this morning so that we can know the joy of renewal and cleansing and having a cleared conscience before our God so that we can be lifted from our shame and our guilt to worship him freely. Let's look at the marks of godly sorrow. There's the situation that prompted the psalm. Now let's look at the marks of godly sorrow, David's amazing response. And I think they can be summed up in two phrases. In godly sorrow, we feel the weight of our sin as against God, and we have a desire to have our hearts renewed by God. Let's look at the first six verses where we see that a mark of godly sorrow is that we feel the weight of our sin as against God. That's who the Psalms addressed to, right? It begins with, have mercy on me, O God. It's a plea for mercy to God. What else can guilty people plead to? Certainly not our own good works, not our internal goodness. Guilty people can only plea for mercy. As Mark taught us last week in his sermon, mercy, God's mercy, is when he does not treat us as our sins deserve. He withholds judgment, even though we deserve it. And what is the grounds for David's plea for mercy? Why would David, who's so clearly guilty, even attempt to plea for mercy? Well, verse 1, he knows of God's unfailing love, and he knows of God's great compassion. God, although I've failed to love you, you never fail to love me, so have mercy. Ever thought of your sin that way as a failure to love God? To be loyal to the one who has shown you immeasurable grace, and it's only because of God's steadfast, unfailing, committed love to his people and his great compassion for broken sinners that we can even plea for mercy. That's the motivation for godly sorrow, isn't it? We're not moved to godly sorrow because of law or religious duty, but when we see the heart of God, we see a heart of mercy. That's what David remembers, and he's crushed that he could dishonor his Lord. And look at the result. He owns his sin. A mark of godly sorrow is that we own our sin. Godly sorrow looks like confessing my sin. In the first three verses, it says, me or my seven times. Have mercy on me. You know, blot out my transgressions. Wash all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgression. My sin is always before me. 
I'm guilty, I'm the one who did it, it's my fault. He doesn't shift blame, he doesn't make excuses or justify his actions. He doesn't say, you know, God, she could have done a little bit better job covering herself up in front of a window, I'm just saying. Or, you know, this whole thing about being a king is like really hard, it's a lot harder than I thought, and for the most part I've been pretty good, so I think you should cut me a little slack on this one. No, he, he confesses his sin. Don't taint your confession by shifting blame or making excuses. Don't make your repentance inauthentic by explaining away your sin. When the Holy Spirit brings conviction into our life for unconfessed and unrepentant sin, simply confess. Godly sorrow looks like owning our sin. It also looks like, uh, it also understands, godly sorrow understands we have sinned against God. Look at verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned. And when you first read this, you probably ask, well, what about the sins that he committed to Uriah and Bathsheba and all the other people he got involved in this? And the Bible here is not trying to diminish the sins that we commit against other people. There are hundreds of verses in the Bible that talk about God's hatred for injustice and how God will punish those who treat others unfairly and unjustly. So it's not trying to diminish the sins he committed against other people, but magnify the offense it was to God. Because the Bible realizes that all sin ultimately goes upward. You know, God made us and owns us, and he created other people in his image so that when we sin against them, ultimately and finally it's a sin against the one who made them. Yes, what David did to Uriah and Bathsheba was horrible. What he did to the Lord was even worse. All sin is ultimately against God as the creator and giver of life. There's a tendency here to kind of explain this psalm away because, well, my sin isn't really as bad as David's. In fact, no one even knows about my sin. What I do is in private. You know, my thoughts, my sexuality, my beliefs doesn't affect anyone. It's hidden. Well, your sins may not affect anyone right now, But all sins against God, so whether it affects other people or not, really isn't even the core of the issue. And that's the heart of godly sorrow, verse 4. I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's the core of true confession and repentance, that I have offended God. True godly sorrow, the focus is on what we've done to God. So it looks like owning our sin, it understands, godly sorrow understands that it's against God, and godly sorrow also recognizes that sin is not something out of the ordinary, but comes from deep down within us. Look at verse 5. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David's acknowledging that his recent sins are not some kind of departure from his past life as a good person. Now, he's not saying, okay, today I'm a sinner, but yesterday I I was a good person. No, his sins are as old as he is. And David realizes that, you know, his, uh, his sinful attitude, his sinful response and action is not a departure from who he really is at the core, but an expression of who he is as a broken person fallen in Adam. The other day I was making dinner and I grabbed a tomato And on top of the tomato, there were some little black blemishes and spots. Uh, But the rest of it looked edible and bright red, so I thought that I could just cut around the blemish and use the rest. So when I cut down the center, all these nasty, slimy black seeds poured out and exposed the rotten core. 
And then I realized that the blemishes on the surface were actually results of the rotten center. The Bible teaches that we sin because we're sinners. It's not that we sin and that makes us a sinner. No, there's something wrong with the software of our heart, the very programming of us from birth. Those of you who are parents know that you don't have to teach your children how to sin. They just do it naturally. You don't have to teach them to steal a toy from their brother, but you do have to teach them to share. You have to teach them right. They do wrong instinctively, don't they? And you don't even have to be a Christian to understand on some level that there's something wrong with us. Haven't you heard people say that in an effort to kind of explain away their failures and sins, well, you're only human, nobody's perfect, Everyone realizes that to err is human, but where the Bible deviates from conventional wisdom is at this point that our sins and our weakness and our failure and proclivity toward evil is not a deviation from who we really are as good people, but a witness and a testimony to a broken heart in need of grace and redemption. And a problem at the core requires a solution at the core. That's why verse 6, David says, you desire truth where? In the inner parts. And you teach me wisdom in the innermost place. God is not satisfied with superficial outward change. His goal is to get at the heart, the very center of who we are, the, the generator of our motivation and desire and will and passion, and to do a work of change there, to get at the very core of who we are. Worldly sorrows only concerned with superficial outward change. Worldly sorrow fears that the evil we love will be taken away. But godly sorrow says, uproot the sin in my heart and wire me towards godliness. Lord, don't just change me merely at the level of screaming at my kids, but change me at the level of my heart where the anger and impatience grows and and replace anger and patience with kindness and love. Lord, don't merely change me outwardly with the outward action of adultery or clicking around the internet. Change my heart where there's a pride that lives that says, I will do whatever I want and I don't care if it offends God or hurts other people. Embrace that pride with submissiveness to your will and a brokenness and a love for your glory. Lord, don't just change me outwardly at the level of coveting someone else's marriage or or job, or money, or possessions. Change my heart where there's a discontentment with the life that you've given me. And replace that discontentment with a contentment in Christ that produces gratitude. That's godly sorrow. Get at the core of who I am and replace the software of my soul so that I'm programmed towards godliness. Change my heart. In godly sorrow, we own our sin understand that it's against God and comes from deep within us. We feel the weight of our sin as against God and we desire to have our hearts renewed by God. That's the next few verses, the next six verses. David's asking to be cleansed and renewed. It's verses 7 through 12. And look at all the different ways David asks He reveals that his desire is to have his heart renewed. Look at all the different ways, the nuanced ways he asks for God's grace. See there in verses 7 through 12, there's a parallelism, right? There's, there's two lines. 
and they say something, they all look at something from a different angle. He says, cleanse me and wash me. Verse 8, joy and gladness and then rejoice. Verse 9, hide your face, blot out. 10, create, renew. 11, do not cast or take. 12, restore and grant. All different ways asking for God's mercy and grace. That's because when we sin, we feel dirty. We lose our joy. We know that we don't deserve to be in God's presence, and we need to be restored. He begins with cleansing. Look at verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop. Hyssop uh, is a bushy-like plant that they would use in Old Testament uh, ceremonies, religious ceremonies, and they would dip this bushy plant in the blood of the animal that was sacrificed for the person, and then they would kind of splash it on the person um, symbolically, the person who needed cleansing and renewal. And David's asking that God would do the work in his heart that that ceremony is pointing to. He also asks to be washed. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. You know, back then they didn't have washers and dryers, and so uh, the clothes, which, you know, got really dirty from being out in the fields or from walking in a very dusty, sandy culture and part of the world, um, they would have to be hand-washed, have to be uh, scrubbed out. All the impurities had to be kind of be scrubbed out. And that's what David's asking that God would do in his heart, that he would, he would get in there and, and scrub it clean. When I was a kid, I used to go visit my grandparents a couple towns over, and my grandmother had this really long clothesline that extended several yards from the house to the garage, and she would hang up her freshly washed white sheets on that clothesline, and so when you pulled into the driveway, you were hit with this wall of bright white. It was whiter than snow, gently blowing in the breeze, and that's what David wants his soul to be. Cleanse me, wash me. I have, an un, I have a, a defiled heart. Would you just wash out the impurities? Not only does he want to be washed, look at verse 10, or I'm sorry, verse 9. He wants God to destroy the record of his sin. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. No, no, no paper back then, so words had to be carved and chiseled into stone or hard clay. And David's saying, chisel out of your record my sins. You know, take the, the stone that has the record of my sins, metaphorically, and, and, and smash it. Because if you don't find a way, Lord, to take your eyes off of my sin, then you'll have to cast me out of your presence. Of course, we know that way is the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Verse 10, he wants God to create in him a pure heart. This word create is a unique Hebrew word that always has God as the subject. So it's a unique creating that only God does. It's actually the first verb of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Create something new in me. Recreate my heart. Just like you spoke the world into existence and created something pure, you can do that in me. Create something new in me. And all this comes from the knowledge in verse 7 that if you cleanse me, then I will be clean. If you cleanse me, it will be done. Only you can do it. And we spend so much time trying to clean ourselves up. If I only do more religious things, if I only give more money, do more good, give more to charity, 
pray more, come to church more, if I only do, I got to find something to do so that I can be clean and have this guilt removed. But the fruit of worldly sorrow is always rotten and the guilt remains, but it's the beautiful irony of the gospel that those who realize they are a sinner in need of God's cleansing are the ones who are cleaned. Have to be brought low in order to be cleansed. So to those here living a secret life of sin, don't you want God to cleanse you? Don't you want to be whiter than snow again? Don't you want the joy of your salvation? God loves you. Sent Christ to die for those sins so that you don't have to be mastered by them anymore. He sent Jesus to suffer disgrace and dishonor on the cross so that you could be lifted from your shame. Brother, sister, confess your sins to the Lord. And if you're Christ's, he listens. So those are the marks of godly sorrow. We own our sin. We understand that it's against God. We understand it comes from deep within us and we desire to have God renew us. So if that's what characterizes godly sorrow, if that's what it looks like, well, then what can we expect the results to be? If that's what godly sorrow is, well, then what will be the outcome? If this is really our heart before the Lord, that's what the next uh, seven verses or so are about. I'm sure you've noticed uh, that in this psalm that it moves from deep despair to humble confidence in God to sounds of joy and praise that God's grace not only forgives us, but it also restores us. Look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Now that David's forgiven, he wants to be used by God. You know, he wants to teach transgressors the ways of God so that they turn back to God. He's talking about repentance. Repentance is agreeing with God's opinion of you, turning from what he hates towards what he loves. And one of the, the results of godly sorrow is that we want to share the gospel. And do you remember when you first re- realized that your sins were forgiven, how excited and enthusiastic you were about the gospel? I wonder if we're not more eager and excited evangelists because it's been a long time since we tasted grace ourselves. Perhaps we don't speak the gospel as freely as we want to, because it's been a long time since we've spoken it to ourselves. Because before I tell other people that they're a sinner who needs the grace of God, I need to remind myself and taste again the cleansing graces of God. I've been praying that God would make us as a congregation more natural, willing, excited evangelists. And through this psalm, I learned that it doesn't start here with our mouths, but somewhere much deeper, our hearts. And when we confess our sin before the Lord and taste the joy of our salvation, oh, then we'll talk about, the, about our Savior. All the, the great spiritual revivals of the Bible and church history have started with the repentance of God's people coming before him again in honesty in their sin, confessing and having God restore them, and then when they are restored, they are excited to talk about Christ. We always talk about what we love and what we're excited about. 
You know, parents are always talking about their kids because they love them. You go to your friend's house and you won't believe what Jimmy made me at school today. Look at this popsicle stick house. Like, wow, that's awesome. But it's not awesome. It's like, (laughs) wow, Jimmy got a little too excited with the glue stick again. We always talk about what we love. We talk about vacations, we talk about pets, we talk about hobbies, we talk about movies. We move conversations towards topics that excite us. We always talk about what we love and what we're excited about. What could be more exciting than the gospel? That a holy God, while you were a sinner, sought you out to adopt you as his child. He sent Jesus to live a sinless life in your place, die a sinner's death for you, and be raised to new life. Then he ascended to the Father where he pours out his spirit, giving us a taste of the new heavens and the new earth, which he has promised to bring us to one day to present us before his Father as holy and blameless and to enjoy him forever. What could be more exciting than the gospel? And that excitement is one of the results of godly sorrow. One more thing about this verse, and I find it absolutely amazing. It's almost offensive that David, who would, has committed so much wickedness, would be restored to usefulness in the work God had called him to. Talk about second chances. Do you think that your sins have made you useless to God? Do you think because of your past you have to ride the bench of the Christian life? You're wrong. For centuries, God has been forgiving and restoring sinners to do mind-blowing things for his glory. In fact, one of the reasons he saves us is to use us. I'm sure you're familiar with Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Hear it again. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. One of the results of godly sorrow that leads to repentance is restoration to usefulness in the work that God has called us to. Another result is the ability to worship God in a way that pleases him. And if you've associated God with dead, cold religion, or if you've only thought of God in mechanical ways, then this part of the psalm will surprise you. Right? I, I say a few words and he forgives me, and I Go to church and go through the motions and I get to heaven. No, no, there's nothing mechanical or dead about David's confession. He doesn't confess out of religious duty. They're not mere words. The goal of his confession, you'll notice in verse 14, is that he would be able to praise God once again. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my mouth will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, my mouth will declare your praise. That's the attitude of his heart. God, I've, I've offended you. Restore me because I need to praise you again. And for the Christian, there's nothing worse than knowing that we have shamed the Son's name and as a result lost our ability to praise him. Even if you've been a Christian for a short time, you know what David's talking about. When we're, we have a clear conscience before the Lord, we can't help but worship him. We can't help but praise him. You're at work, you find yourself humming a hymn. You're in the car, and you find yourself getting so into your Christian music that other drivers are now getting uncomfortable. You know, a, a trip to CVS turns into an addition for America's Got Talent. But when we're excited about what God has done in our lives and forgive us, we can't help but praise him. 
but when we let unconfessed and unrepentant sin live in our lives, we feel like the biggest hypocrites in the world and our mouths stay shut. But the results of godly sorrow are audible. Confession leads to praise. Restoration and repentance leads to joyful singing. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I just want to point out to you that submitting to Jesus, that following Christ is not opposed to joy. I'm sure you've met some bitter, joyless Christians, but they in no way reflect biblical Christianity. In biblical Christianity, there's always joy that comes from our salvation. I know I've talked a lot about sin, and maybe you're offended by that, but I just want to point out the goal of being honest and open and serious about our sin before God and with ourselves. Well, the goal is freedom and joy. So the results of godly sorrow are being restored to usefulness, worship and praise, and then here's another result of godly sorrow, that we can worship God with the right heart attitude. That's verses 16 and 17. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David's not belittling the sacrificial system here. God had given it to them as an act of grace. And in fact, if you look at verse 19, he wants uh, there to be righteous sacrifices and whole burnt offerings that delight God. So he's not abandoning the sacrificial system here. He's trying to get to the heart behind it, right? God had given his people in the Old Testament the sacrificial system. He had hardwired into the very rhythm of their lives very clear reminders that they are sinful and he is holy and that they must do certain things to remain in his presence. Day after day, they would bring animals to be sacrificed and the message was clear. This animal is taking the punishment that you deserve for your sin the innocent for the guilty, substitution. And the judgment this animal is receiving is what you deserve. It was never meant to be mere religious activity, but it was meant to engage the heart, come from a broken and contrite heart, a humble heart that was so thankful that God would provide a way for sinners to be with him. He acknowledges that all the sacrifices in the world are meaningless without verse 17, a broken and contrite heart. Now, every offering is meaningless unless it comes from the right place in our heart. We can go to church for years, listen to sermons, tithe. We can even share the gospel with people, teach Sunday school, lead growth groups, teach children, serve in the nursery, clean in the kitchen, preach a sermon. But if it doesn't come from the right heart, it's repulsive to God. God doesn't want us to worship him and do things to earn our salvation. God wants us to worship him out of a heart of gratitude because he did everything to save us. So in godly sorrow, we own our sin, understand that it's against God, comes from deep within us, and that we know we need to be renewed by God, and then by his grace, he renews us, restores us, gives us back our song, and helps us to worship with the right heart. Have you lost your ability to praise him? Perhaps you've come here week after week and murmured the words, but inside your heart it was numb. Have you let unconfessed sin fester in your life? 
Brother and sister, God is kind. Confess your sins to him. And you know that when you do, verse 17, oh, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. You don't have to fear that God will look away from you in your shame if you're honest and open with him. He already knows it. And he still pursues you. It's not a place where you have to hide from God, but you can be real and serious before the Lord. So before we close in the last song, we're going to take a few minutes right here to pray. Silently, right where we are. Pray that God would show you unconfessed sin in your life, that he would move you towards godly sorrow. Pray that he would bring about cleansing and renewal, that he would restore you and let you taste his grace. And then after a few minutes, I'll close us in prayer. Let's all take some time to pray before the Lord. Our Father, a broken and contrite spirit and heart you will not despise. We thank you for Jesus. It's only in him that we can come before you. We thank you for that gracious provision. I pray for my friends, my brothers, and my sisters that you would help us to repent, help us to be real about our sin, help us to come to you confessing Lord, will you help us to taste the joy of our salvation again? And then we will teach sinners your ways. Amen.